evening, everybody. We're glad you're here for our second session of the amazing book of Daniel. I want to make a correction before I forget. I got busy in what I was talking about last time. And remember, I, I used the terminology BCE and uh, the common era CE. I mentioned the Arabs and the Jews don't accept Jesus as the, uh, the Lord, so Anno Domini, which means in the year of our Lord, A.D., wouldn't apply. And I accidentally said B.C.E. means before the Christian era. No, it doesn't. It means before the common era. And for the sake of those who may be listening on the recording, I want to make sure I correct that. I know what it meant, but I said before the Christian era and the Christian era because my mind was elsewhere. Let's have, again, a word of prayer, and we'll, we'll begin. Gracious Father, thank you for this wonderful book that you've given us. And Lord, we invite your Holy Spirit to come into our hearts as we study it together. Fill our, our hearts, forgive our sins, and lead us into all truth through thy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin with a review of chapter 1. I'm going to make it quick. I've got a lot of slides tonight because chapter 2 is a long chapter. And since we're doing verse by verse, I have to read the verse by verse, but I still have a lot of extra slides in there too. So if I talk too fast and you you don't understand something, make sure you come up and clarify it with me because I want to make sure I give you correct information. Now in the first chapter of Daniel, it began with a defeat and The city of Jerusalem had fallen, looked like the God of Israel had fallen. But by the time you reach the end of the chapter, it shows that the God of heaven was still in control. And it showed that God was working through the lives of those who were faithful, in particular Daniel. Because Daniel remained true to the commandments of God, which included the principles of diet that were found in Leviticus 11, God was glorified before the Babylonians, even before King Nebuchadnezzar, the head of the Babylonians. And in chapter 1, a lot of times we place a lot of emphasis on the health aspect of it, and we overlook the fact that the chapter is really about idolatry because the foods that they had were offered to idols. Many times we think, well, Daniel was a vegetarian before he got to Babylon. Not necessarily, don't forget, he ate the Passover. And the Passover, you had to eat a lamb, right? So, but when he got there, because the foods that were on the king's table were a part of his brainwashing technique, he didn't know which was offered to idols, which wasn't. His safest bet was to be a vegetarian. And it showed in the end that Daniel came out healthier and stronger than the others who gave in. Now, notice that in chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar was attacking the first and second commandments because we brought out the point, the word creator, that he had given this diet. Well, it was God who gave the diet originally. And there were certain things that are brought out in the text that Nebuchadnezzar was actually claiming indirectly, to be the creator. Also, in eating these foods, he was setting himself up above God. And the foods for him to participate in it would be uh, to eat of an idolatrous feast. And so for this reason, among others, and I do believe that the health aspect was uh, uh, an important aspect of this, The moral law of God was under attack. And Daniel's stance on the health message enabled him to stand confidently before the king when we get to chapter 2. Isn't it interesting, and you will bring this out when we get to chapter 2, is that the wise men wanted more time, and he said, nothing doing. Daniel comes in and he says, your majesty, give me some time. And the king says, you got it. What made the difference? I think Daniel caught the eye of the king as a a man he could have confidence in. And so we find that 
Oftentimes, it's the health message that's the right arm of the gospel and enables us to gain influence with people with normally, which normally we wouldn't have if we started talking straight Bible to them. So anyway, this is a quick review. I also mentioned to you that the book itself is arranged in an interesting order. Chronologically, this is how the chapters would run. Chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4. Notice, they are, chronologically, this is the events that it begins talking about. And then, the second section is 7, 8, and 5. Because in chapter 7, you have the first year of Belshazzar. In chapter 5, you have Belshazzar dying. Well, he can't die before his, he starts his reign. So you can see that they're kind of out of sequence. And then over here, the third section, 9, 11, 6, we see that Darius is on the throne, and then finally Darius dies. And then we wrap it up with 10 and 12. And it's interesting that these chapters mention Michael. Not mentioned in the earlier chapters. So there's a chronological arrangement in the scriptures that um, go by the reigns of the kings. Now it's interesting, Dr. Jacques Ducan, who is uh, a Christian minister, he's a Seventh-day Adventist Christian minister, he's also a Jewish rabbi, he's Jewish himself. And Jacques Ducan wrote this in, his, in a Shabbat Shalom article um, entitled The Seven uh, Perspectives in the Book of Daniel. He wrote this, Daniel's book is a literary masterpiece. The general structure of the book shows balance and symmetry in the form of a chiasm or of a menorah that encompasses the whole message of the book. And I'll show you that in a minute. He uses parallelisms. We find that poetic verses and plays on words. Plays on words are called a pun. By the way, Amos is full of puns. But anyway, he uses plays on words uh, in the, they abound throughout his book. Daniel speaks through the beauty of his words and the intricate rhythms of the stories and songs. So the book of Daniel is not something that some old man just wrote down. These, the, the very structure of, of the book is very Jewish and it is structurally sound in many ways. He mentions here a couple of things. I don't know if you can see those lines too well, but notice we talked about a chiasm before. A chiasm is a Jewish form of writing, literature. It's shaped like an X. And notice you find that chapter 2 and chapter 7 connect. They talk about similar things. We find that 4 and 5 do. 3 and 6 do in the first half of the book. And then in the second half of the book, you have 7 and 12, 9 and 10, 8 and 11. So this chiastic form runs through the book of Daniel. There's another interesting thing about it. If you look at these chapters and you look at them sequentially, you know, 1 through 12, another pattern emerges. The book... Uh, chapter 1 is separate because that's more introductory. But if you look at the chapters that follow, 2 and 12 and 3 and 6, 4 and 5, 8 and 11, 9 and 10, and you notice that the chiasm, that's the way they are? He took the chiasm, stretched them out, and they are in the form of a menorah. What is a menorah? It's a Jewish candlestick, right? And what did the menorah contain? It contained the oil. It contained the light that brought life and zeal to the spiritual experience. And so what is he saying? He's saying that the Holy Spirit is running right through this, this whole book. Isn't it interesting that the very structure of it is itself an amazing uh, instrument. Now let's look at Daniel chapter 2. 
you're familiar with too, you've had it many times before, but let's go through it. It begins by talking about this strange man of mud and metal. He's, you've got the clay, you've got the various metals in it. It's really in two parts. The part that talks about the rock and the part that talks about the statue. And it is very prophetic. You know, I can't tell you what I'm going to do tomorrow. I have trouble telling you what I did today. But yet Daniel could see 2,600 years in advance with 100% accuracy. Now notice, even very well-educated men, and you've, some of you have seen this slide before, rail travel at high speeds is not possible because passengers unable to breathe would die of asphyxia. That was in 1823. Well, today, trains and rockets are going far beyond that. And we haven't suffocated yet. This telephone has too many shortcomings to be seriously considered as a means of communication. This device is inherently of no value to us. That was in 1876. And then this one. The problem with television is that people must sit and keep their eyes glued on a screen. The average family hasn't time for it. That was 1939. You see. And what about this one? 1943. I think there is a world market for maybe five computers. I don't know. I have, uh, I think, four in my house if you count a tablet. And then what about this one? There is no reason anyone would want a computer in their home. It's all right for IBM, but nobody wants a computer in their home. That was 1977. That's the year I came to Michigan. That statement was made. But you know, the prophet, Daniel, even though those predictions became obsolete, Daniel's Prophecies have never become obsolete. For 2,600 years, Daniel's prophecy has been 100% correct. Even though there have been multitudes of times when the devil has tried to interrupt it or disturb it or break it. But yet, it is still faithful. Look what Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 says. For I am God and there is no other. I am God. And there is none like me, declaring the what? The end from the beginning. From the beginning, he sees the end of time. He, to God, past, present, and future don't exist. He is above and beyond time. Time is created for man. Look at uh, verses 9 and 10. And from ancient times, things that are not yet done. Isn't it interesting that the second coming of Jesus is already the past in the eyes of God? You see, he can, he can see ahead, and for us it's not done yet, for, but for him, we're already in the kingdom. He can see that far ahead. And so we find that the God of heaven knows the future. And he reveals it to whomever he wishes, whenever he wishes. It is in his domain. We're going back tonight to an ancient king who had a dream. And in Daniel 2, verse 1, it says, And in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams, wherewith his spirit was troubled, and his sleep break from him. When Nebuchadnezzar can't sleep, nobody can sleep you will find that he will get his wise men up in the middle of the night. Now, as we look at this, this was the world kingdom at the time. Daniel is before the mightiest nation at that time period. And every day as he went to work, he went through those gates and this beautiful brick wall that you see it would have bulls and dragons. It would have lions. These were all symbols that Daniel was familiar with. Eagles' wings and everything. They were on the wall. Therefore, when the dream comes to the king, the king 
connects this with something that he's familiar with. These are familiar figures to him. Look at 2.2. It says, Then the king commanded to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans for to show the king his dream. So they came and stood before the king. Probably came with their jammies on. I don't know. But they come and stand before the king. And notice the, the different men he calls, the magicians. And I mentioned this in the Revelation seminar. The magicians, they used to tell the future by taking a cauldron of water and they would drop oil on it. The oil slick. And then they'd watch the pattern as it spread out. And then they would tell the king the future from that. And then it mentions the astrologers. Now, astronomy and astrology were pretty much blended back in those days. But they tried to foretell the future by the heavenly uh, bodies. And then there were the sorcerers. The sorcerers, they did use spells. They also try to communicate with the dead, although the necromancers were especially, uh, that was more their field. But we would call them today spirit mediums or witches even. And we find that the Chaldeans, they would study the philosophies of the writings of the ancient peoples. And they would try to predict from there. There's another group called the soothsayers. That's not mentioned here, it's mentioned later. They're the ones that would take a lamb or a chicken and they'd slice it open and look inside the way the various internal organs were laid out and they would try to foretell the future from that. So this was the method they understood for telling the future. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar was used to. But he had this dream. Now in the original language, it appears that the dream appeared more than once. No, because the word dream in the original language is actually in the plural. And it says in verse 3, And the king said unto them, I have dreamed a dream. Well, actually, I have dreamed dreams. And my spirit was troubled to know the dream. Now, in the ancient times, they placed a lot more stock in dreams than we do. If you say, oh, I had a terrible dream. I dreamed of monsters last night. My reply would be, see, I told you not to eat that pizza before you went to bed. Right? But in those days, they placed the Orientals. uh, When I say Orientals, I'm referring to Asia Minor and the the people, because that is the Orient at that point. They placed a lot of stock in these dreams that the gods were trying to communicate with them. And don't forget that Nebuchadnezzar was the high priest of his nation. He was the Pontifex Maximus. He was not only the physical, I mean, the governmental and civil leader, but he was also the spiritual leader. And somehow he felt the gods were trying to get through to him. The NIV speaking of uh, chapter 2, 1 through 3, says this. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled, and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, the enchanters. The enchanters were spellcasters. The sorcerers and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Well, he's had dreams before. They came in and interpreted them. Now, notice in verse 4 it says, Then spake the Chaldeans to the king in Syriac. Now, Syriac is a Syrian language that's similar to Aramaic, The Hebrew and the Babylonian and Syriac are similar languages, just like English and Australian and uh, American are similar languages, but sometimes we can't always understand each other, you see. But they were similar languages. And they came and they said to the king, no king live forever. That's a lie. He was a tyrant. They would have been happy to see him croak. But... That was polite. Live forever. 
Tell the servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. This is the policy that they used to follow. And he was beginning to get wise to them because the wise men weren't as wise as they claimed to be. In those days, the term wise men was oftentimes applied to government officials. And as you know, our government officials are all wise men, you see. And who were they? They were basically the magicians, sorcerers, astrologers, etc. Verse 5, the king answered and said unto the Chaldeans, the thing is gone from me, I can't remember it if he will not make known unto me the dream and the interpretation thereof, you shall be cut in pieces and your houses will be made a dunghill. In plain words, I'm going to chop you up in little pieces and your house is going to become an outhouse. Not only that, I'm going to burn it to the ground. Well, you know, that's a bit of incentive. And they were very anxious to interpret the dream. And notice what they say in verse 6. But if you show the dream and the interpretation thereof, you shall receive of me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and the interpretation thereof. I will make you wealthy if you can do this. If you don't, too bad for you. Look at verse 7. They answered again and said, Let the king tell his servant the dream. And we'll give you the interpretation. We want to do it. But he couldn't remember it. Look at verse 8. The king answered and said, I know of a certainty that you would gain the time because you see that the thing is gone from me. He's saying, you guys are stalling for more time so you can collaborate together and come up with some fancy interpretation for me because you know I can't remember it. So they were in a spot. So was the king for that matter because he felt this was important. Look at verse 9. But if you will not make known unto me the dream, there is but one decree for you. For ye have prepared lying and corrupt words to speak before me till the time be changed. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall uh, know that you can show me the interpretation thereof. Before, when he had a dream, various dreams, he would tell them the dream, and then they would give him an interpretation that could be taken several ways. And whichever way it turned out, they would be right. And as I've mentioned before, it's like saying, Bob, have you stopped beating your wife yet? So you're continuing to beat her, right? No? Oh, you've stopped beating her, but you used to in the past. You see what I mean? No matter how he answers, he's stuck. And this was the kind of thing that they would do to Nebuchadnezzar. They would give him uh, answers that if it went one way, see, we were right. And if it went the other way, see, we were right. And so Nebuchadnezzar was catching on to them. Verse 10. The Chaldeans answered uh, before the king and said, There is not a man upon the earth that can show the king's matter. Therefore, there is no king, lord, nor ruler that asks such things of any magician or astrologer or Chaldean. And it is a rare thing that the king requireth. And there is none other that can show it before the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Now, these fellows had very confidently told the king in the past that they were in communication with the gods and that the gods would tell them different things. This is how they gained power. The gods would speak to them and they would speak to the king. But they just blew their cover. They said that there's not a man on the earth that can reveal this, except the gods, and they don't dwell with us. They don't talk to us. Oh, boy. Notice Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was a sincere man, but he had a tad bit of a temper. Notice what it says in verse 12. For this cause, 
because they were stalling, the king was angry and he was a little bit upset. Is that what it says? It doesn't say he was furious. It says he was very furious. He blew his cork. And you guys, all this time, you've been pulling my leg? And he commanded to destroy all of the wise men of Babylon. Now, you've got to remember that Daniel and his friends had been going to the University of Babylon for the last three years. They had just graduated. They're just starting their uh, governmental career. When this decree goes forward, it was written in such general terms that it would take them in too. And they hadn't done anything. And so they were concerned when the decree came from the king, execute them all, off with their heads. When the news came back to Daniel, he, whoa, wait a minute, what's going on here? And verse 13 says, And the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain. And they sought Daniel and his uh, fellows to be slain. So they were going through purging all the wise men. Look at verse 14. Then Daniel answered with counsel and wisdom to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, as he came to him. He and Arioch had become pretty good friends. At least they were well acquainted with each other. And he says, the king sent me to round you fellows up. Whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. And then he tells him what the decree was, which was gone forth to slay all the wise men of Babylon. And he answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree so hasty from the king? Then Arioch made the thing known to him, known to Daniel. He told him that the wise men couldn't interpret it. And notice what Daniel says. You talk about going out on a limb. Daniel went out on a limb with God. In verse 16, Then Daniel went in and desired the king that he would give him time and that he would show the king the interpretation. Now, here's this young whippersnapper, fresh out of college. He goes in and says, Your majesty, if you will just hold off your decree for a little bit, I'll give it you the interpretation. Now, I imagine all the wise men are going, gulp. You know, everything is riding on this boy. And they didn't like him anyway, because he was a Jewish slave, a captive who had been elevated. But he promises he'll come back with the interpretation. And I think that Nebuchadnezzar, because of chapter 1, I think Nebuchadnezzar thought, this boy might be onto something. He might know something we don't. Besides, what, what other options did he have? The king had nothing to lose. The wise men did, but he didn't. And not only this too, but I think that the God of heaven just impressed Nebuchadnezzar to hold off. And notice, when he goes in before the king, he's risking a lot. Not only his life, He's going to be risking the lives of his friends as well. And he's put God on the line. Notice what it says in verse 17. Then Daniel went into his house, and he made the thing known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. Now remember, these are their Hebrew names. Nebuchadnezzar and his brainwashing techniques, not only did he try to change their diet, and so forth. He even changed their names to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All part of trying to deculturize them. But what did Daniel do? He went home and he prayed. Too often when we have a problem, do we really take it to the Lord in prayer? In this case, that not only was his life on writing on that prayer, but so was the future of that nation. He put God on the spot he said, God, if you don't deliver, you're going to look bad. And so Daniel was really stepping out in faith. Look at verse 18. That they would desire the mercies of the God of heaven concerning this secret, that Daniel and his fellows should not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So 
Daniel goes and he has a prayer meeting with his friends. He says, guys, I just told the king I'd come back tomorrow with this interpretation. You've got to help me. Please, please pray. You talk about intercessory prayer. I imagine they were praying very hard. Look at verse 19. Then was the secret revealed unto Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Now it's interesting that the prayer of Daniel after he receives the vision, that's all it says. It says God gave him the vision in the night. But you know his prayer is very lengthy. Thanking God for what he has done. He gave him the exact same dream that the king had. Does prayer make a difference? Yes, it does. There are some who say, well, prayer doesn't make a difference. It does. And we should be praying for one another. That the Lord will help us to gain victories over challenges that, that face us. Daniel answered, now goes in before the king. Daniel answered and said, first off, he's praying. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. For wisdom and might are his. He knew where that wisdom came from. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removeth kings and he setteth up kings. He gives wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that no understanding. He revealeth the deep and secret things. He knoweth what is in the darkness and the light dwelleth with him. And then he thanks the Lord. I thank thee and praise thee, O thou God of my fathers, who hast given me wisdom and might, and hast made known unto me now what we desired of thee. For thou hast now made known unto us the king's matter. What is, see, he spends more time thanking God and praising God than he did asking God for the dream. God already knew what he needed. Therefore, Daniel went unto Arioch. Arioch's the one that brought him the news of the decree. The captain of the, the guard, and he says, he went unto Arioch, whom the king had ordained to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus unto him, Destroy not the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show unto the king the interpretation. Now, this fellow Arioch kind of tickles me a little bit. It says, Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste. He quickly brought him in. And notice what he says. And he said thus unto him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah that will make known unto the king the interpretation. Can't you picture him sticking his hand out waiting for the reward? I have found this man. What's my reward? You know? Now, the interesting part is, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't even pay any attention to him. He immediately starts talking to Daniel. He doesn't even reply to Nebuchadnezzar. The king answered and said unto Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Art thou able to make known unto me the dream which I have seen in the interpretation thereof? Now, Daniel could have done like Arioch did and tried to take the credit to himself. But Daniel doesn't do that. He says, no, your majesty, I can't. But I know someone who can. The God of heaven. And Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, the secret which the king hath demanded cannot the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, or the soothsayers show unto the king? Now, they're probably all standing there beside him in a row. And I can just picture Daniel saying, Your Majesty, can't these wise men tell you the interpretation? And they're all going, Nope. He put them on a spot. He embarrassed them. And then he says, Neither can I, but God can. Look 28. But there is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets and maketh known unto the king Nebuchadnezzar. Remember? The gods don't reveal these things to men. He says, your majesty, the true God of heaven is revealing it to you. 
that belied what the wise men had told him. He maketh known unto the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. Now the word latter days means from this day forward. You see, that's what it means. He's not going to dwell on the past. He's going from the forward. That's why it doesn't even mention about the Egyptians in this. Because they're behind him. He's looking ahead. Thy dream and the vision of thy head upon thy bed are these. Verse 28. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets and has made known unto the king what will be in the latter days. Now 29. As for thee, O king, thy thoughts came into thy mind upon thy bed. What should come to pass hereafter? And he that revealeth secrets maketh known unto thee what shall come to pass. But as for me, this secret is not revealed to me for any wisdom that I have more than any living, but for their sakes that shall make known the interpretation to the king, and that thou mayest know the thoughts of thine heart. Notice he's not taking credit to himself. And so in verse 31, Thou, O king, sawest, and behold, a great image, this great image whose brightness was excellent. He stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. Terrible means awesome. In the good sense as well as in the bad sense. That word awesome, by the way, can be used in a positive or a negative way. When you are filled with awe at something, you hear a beautiful concert, and you're filled with awe, that's an awesome concert. But it's also awesome if you see something terrible that it's happened. And so he tells the king about this great image that he saw. You're familiar with it. And it's made of different metals. The gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron. And then he goes into detail explaining what each of these different metals mean. He was being shown the history of the world 2,600 years in advance. And I say 2,600 years because that's the time that's passed. How much more, we don't know. And then he talks about this rock that was cut out without hands, strikes the image on the foot, and lo, it becomes a great mountain. Now, the real crux of this whole vision is that rock. He's just telling how to get to the rock in these verses. 32, he says, This image's head was of fine gold, his breast and arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. And so it was mud and metal that went into this image. Look at 34. Thou sawest till the stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and break them in pieces. All of human history will come to an end when that rock kingdom comes down. When the rock of ages sets up his kingdom. There are those who say that, well, Jesus will come and the nations of the earth will be converted. Not so. The history of nations will collapse. And verse 35, Then was the iron and the clay and the brass and the silver and the gold broken to pieces together, They were mixed up together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floor. And the wind carried them away that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. When we were in Cambodia, I I used to watch them take grain and they would beat it on a mat on the ground. Then they'd scoop it up and they'd throw it up in the air. And the wind would blow away the straw and the, uh, the chaff. And the grain would fall to the ground. And they'd do this several times, over and over again, until they separated it. And that's what he's saying. The nations of the world, human history, will be tossed up in the air and blown away. And what do you have left? You have the rock. And that rock would be the next world empire. Verse 36. 
This is the dream, and we will tell you the interpretation, therefore, before the king. Now notice, he doesn't say, I will tell you, does he? He says, we will tell you. God is working through Daniel, and he's not taking credit for it. 37. Thou, O king, art uh, king of kings, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. He set you up as a great monarch. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven, hath he given into thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. Obviously, he's talking about his kingdom. And he was a despotic ruler. He had complete authority. He was an unchecked monarch, an absolute ruler. And he says, you are this head of gold. Well, I'm sure Nebuchadnezzar said, oh, I like this dream. This is cool. I get to be the most wanted, the most uh, valuable metal and the head. The head's the boss of the whole body. Hey, I'm really something. Well, Nebuchadnezzar wanted his kingdom to last a thousand years. And the Lord's going to wake him up on that. Look at verse 39. And after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, and a third kingdom of brass, and they shall bear rule over all the earth. And so we find each of these kingdoms he mentions, and each has a medal attached to it. And it's interesting that if you look through the Bible, you will usually see these medals, when they are mentioned, they are usually mentioned in that declining order. There's various places in the Bible, and they usually mention them in that order. Why? Because of their value. Notice verse 40. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdues all things, And as iron that breaketh all these, shall it break in pieces and bruise. And so this iron kingdom was going to be a very strong and tough kingdom. Let's look at verse 41. And whereas thou sawest the feet and the toes, part of potter's clay, part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. But there shall be in it of the strength of iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. Now, it's interesting that this point has really several applications because it's saying that there would be a mixture of church and state. It also talks about the strength of the nations. And when we get to that, I'll point that out. Look at verse 42. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. Some will be strong, some will be weak. The British have been strong through the centuries. The French have, the Spanish have, the Portuguese were for a while. But what was the last time we were attacked by the Swiss Navy? You see, some of these nations would be strong, some would be weak. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seeds of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. You're familiar with this prophecy, the history of it, most of you. Notice the head of gold was Babylon. I remember in high school, I remember them talking about, well, they didn't talk so much about Babylon and Medo-Persia, but when they came to Greece, they would talk about the Bronze Age. When they came to Rome, they would talk about the Iron Age. You see, those metals were connected. 
And I don't have time to tell you the value of those, but they really had connections. Babylon was the head of gold. The chest, notice there's two arms. The chest and arms. The Medes and the Persians unite together to bring down Babylon. And then it talks about the thighs of brass. This was Greece, or Grisha, as it's called. And then the next kingdom, the kingdom of iron. He didn't know how to describe that. Babylon, Medes, and Persians, and Greeks were all in existence at the time that Daniel was alive. But Rome was just a little hick town over in Italy. It hadn't come to power yet. And so Daniel really wasn't familiar with it. That's why it was kind of a nondescript beast. But we find here that in this vision, it had two legs. The Roman Empire, in several scenarios, is in two parts. There was the Eastern Roman Empire and the Western Roman Empire. The Eastern Roman Empire later became known as the Byzantine Empire. And the, the Western became the Roman Empire. We find that the Eastern Empire would be basically Orthodox, whereas the Western Roman Empire would be Catholic. We find that there was pagan Rome and Christian Rome. So the two legs have multiple, and persecution would prevail in them all, you see. And so we find that he uses two legs and then the feet of iron and clay the Roman Empire began to crumble from within. And interestingly enough, if you've studied anything into the history of that, the Roman Empire, as they moved toward the 400s, they began to accept more and more barbarians into Rome until Rome actually had more barbarians in the city of Rome than they had Romans. And before long, these these barbarian uh tribes that before were put down by the Romans, they began to take over the military and they began to break away and the Roman Empire crumbled from within. Notice what Daniel 2.45 says. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, The great God hath made known unto the king what shall come to pass hereafter, that the dream is certain and the interpretation thereof is sure. In plain words, this is not a conditional prophecy. He says, this is going to happen. And it's interesting that the only world empires there have been have been Babylon, the Medo-Persian, the Greek, and the Roman. Only four. There will be a fifth, but that fifth has not yet come. That's what the stone represents, and that's the one we're looking forward to. This great Babylon that had ancient roots, going back to the time of Noah, this great empire would fall. Now, it's interesting that a letter from Nebuchadnezzar tells about what Nebuchadnezzar was thinking about. Archaeologists have found some of these things. It says, the whole earth was prostrated at her feet, speaking of Babylon. And in the back of some of the uh, building materials and bricks, we find even Nebuchadnezzar's name. But on this one it says, speaking of Babylon, may it last forever. That's what he wanted to set up. And Daniel was telling him, it ain't going to happen. This is the way it's going to be, not the way you want it to be. Even today, there are people who are trying to set up a one-world empire, hoping to unite the world into one powerful kingdom. It didn't work for Nebuchadnezzar. It's not going to work according to what Daniel tells us. And so we find these great nations have come and gone. Now there's Babylonian head. The Babylonian kingdom ruled from 605 to 539 B.C. 
and or BCE, before the Common Era. And we find that Babylon was considered well-organized. It was uh, very strong and powerful. But it wasn't going to last. It would be replaced by the kingdom of silver. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to you, just as silver, if you had your choice between gold or silver, which would you take? And the silver chest, we find that when Belshazzar, whom we'll get into later, was had, the last king of Babylon, was having his, his feast. It was really an orgy. All of a sudden, the God of heaven intervenes and he writes on the wall with the finger of God the great words, meaning, which means God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. He repeats that, meaning, meaning, then tikal. It means thou art weighed in the balances and found wanting. Peres, also euparson, which is a form of it. Thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And so Belshazzar knew the Medes and Persians were going to get him. They were already outside and camped around. King Cyrus named approximately 150 years before his birth. 150 years before he was born. He was named by name in the scriptures, that he would be the one that would take Babylon. And notice Isaiah 45.1. Isaiah writes this 150 years before Cyrus is born. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed. Now the word anointed means Messiah. In, the word Messiah means a deliverer. So in this sense, Cyrus is a type of Christ who breaks down Babylon to deliver God's people. Does that sound familiar? Something like that in Revelation? When the true Messiah comes, destroys Babylon, and sets up his kingdom? You see the parallels here. Whose right hand I have held to subdue nations before him and to loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. Now it's interesting it says, loose the armor of kings. If you look at some of the translations, it says that he would loose the loins of men, in plain words, he'd scare them so that their knees would knock together. And you can imagine, I think if I saw a mysterious handwriting on the wall, I think my teeth and my knees would all be shaking at the same time, wouldn't yours? And it says, leave open the two-leaf gates. He went through the tunnel. He drained the water out he went through the tunnel, and those doors, those double doors to the water tunnel were supposed to be kept closed. And he went, check these, they're closed, they're locked, these are locked. And so Cyrus goes down through with his army, checking the doors, and lo and behold, there's one set that's wide open, directly in front of the palace of the king. All they had to do was overpower the drunk guards who were asleep on duty anyway, made their way into the palace, and as Daniel is reading this inscription to him, they are already making their way into the palace. And so we find that after they had diverted the water from the channel, they went through till they found the two leave gates that were open. And then they went through and opened the rest for the rest of the armies. It's interesting that the Cyrus Cylinder has been found. And the material I gave you talks a little bit about that. And Cyrus there, he describes how he took Babylon. And so from 539 to 331 B.C., we find that the Medes and the Persians would rule. Cyrus was both a Mede and a Persian. He had one parent from Media and the other parent from Persia. And so we find that he united them, but later on the Persian Empire will ascend. And then it says he will fall. Now it was during the time of the Medes and Persians that we find Queen Esther comes on the scene. And the whole story of Esther takes place. But after that will come the Brass Kingdom. 
Then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which is brass, which shall rule over all the earth. And, of course, Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, when he died, was the same age Jesus was when he died. But Alexander had gotten into uh, a drinking bout with some of his officers, and he thought he could drink them under the table. He tried, and as a result, he got sick, and it wasn't long thereafter that he perished. But here, one man conquered the whole world and died because of his intemperance. And then we think of Jesus. It looks like he had lost the whole world. He dies as a a criminal, and yet it turns out that he's the one that gained the whole world. And it was Alexander who lost out. And so we find that Alexander, with his brass shields that he used to reflect the sunlight into the eyes of his enemy, he conquers, only to be conquered. Notice this historical library, book 16, chapter 12, it says, I am persuaded that there was no nation, city, nor people where his name did not reach. There seems to me to have been some divine hand presiding both over his birth and actions. Alexander was called for a purpose. And the Greeks ruled from 331 to 168 B.C., but they were defeated by the Romans. And finally, verse 40, finally there will be a fourth kingdom strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And so Rome ruled the world. My wife and I were in Rome a few years ago and as we stood there and looked around all we saw were these crumbled temples and these crumbled buildings. That nation wanted to live a thousand years also. Rome managed to rule the world for approximately 500 years but it's gone. Here's a picture of what it looks like today. And that's more uh, organized pictures. Some areas it's just uh, crumbled all over. Rome ruled from 168 B.C. to the middle of the 4th century A.D. As a matter of fact, 476 is given as the official fall of the Roman Empire. And notice what Gibbon says in Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. The images of gold and silver and brass that might serve to represent the nations and their kings were successively broken by the iron monarchy of Rome. We find that even Gibbons, who was not a believer, he attaches the significance, biblical significance, to this history. And so we find the feet of iron and clay. And as I said, some would be strong, some would not. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. There are ten toes on the kingdom. There were ten powers that broke down the Roman Empire. Some people have different ideas exactly which of these tribes were which and where they went and so forth. But generally, they amount to these. The Alemanni, they're your Germans. Some languages still call them the Alemanni. And the Burgundians, Burgundy is a purplish color. Kind of, well, that's a little darker than Burgundy. But Burgundy is a, a darker color. Why? Because that's the color of grapes. Where do they grow grapes? They grow it on the French Swiss border. Because that's where the Burgundians settled. And they became the Swiss. The Franks. They used to be Franks, but then they became the French. The Lombards became the Italians. The Saxons and another tribe called the Angles, they moved over to England and they became the English. The Suevi, these are the Portuguese. The Visigoths, these are the Spanish. Then there were the Heruli, which also went down into Italy but would be wiped out. The Vandals, 
went down through Italy and across North Africa, and they would destroy just for the sake of destroying. Thus we get the word vandalism from it. And then there were the Ostrogoths. The Ostrogoths, the name Austria comes from them. The Ostrogoths were a group of Gothic people, but they did not subscribe to the religion of Rome. And therefore, well, these, these last three, the Huli Vandals and Ostrogoths, did not submit to the Roman church. And they were later plucked up. But they were part of those original ten. Now, you can see from the map basically where they went. And so we find, as it says in verse 43, as you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men. In plain words, through intermarriage. Napoleon and Josephine tried through intermarriage to unite. And we find that many rulers have come and gone. Fredericksburg Castle in Denmark. If you go in there, you'll see a tapestry where King Frederick and Queen Diana tried to marry off their children. And Queen Victoria tried this too. Marry off their children to other crowned heads so that their grandchildren would inherit all of what was once the Roman Empire. We find that in the year 800 A.D., Charlemagne was crowned king of the Holy Roman Empire. First off, it wasn't holy. It wasn't Roman, and it wasn't that much of an empire. He got some of the pieces together, but he never got them all. And it didn't outlast him. I mean... When he died, he left it to his sons, but it didn't take long before it crumbled. Look at verse 43. But they will not adhere one to another, just as iron does not mix with miry clay. They will not adhere. I mentioned Napoleon. At the Battle of Waterloo, he tried it, and he fell before long. The Bible says that even in modern times, Hitler tried it. So did some others. And through the European common market, they were trying to unite the world. But what's happening to the common market today? What's happening over in Europe with the British pulling out? And there may be others who will do also. It looks like they're going to succeed in uniting the the Roman Empire again, but it falls flat on its face. They will not adhere to one another What was the principal adversary of this tremendous power? By whom was it checked and resisted and put down? By none and by nothing but the direct manifest interposition of God. It is God who is still in control, though men may try through physical force to take it, though they may try through wars and battles, they may try through intermarriage, they may try through treaties of various types. But yet, that prophecy stands firm and has not yet been broken. And according to what the scripture says, it will not be. For verse 45 says, The dream is certain and the interpretation thereof is sure. My friends, that gives me confidence. That gives me confidence. It also tells me that what I believe in the Bible can be trusted because the author of the Bible has a good track record. And if I can believe what happened in the past, it gives me hope for the future. Verse 44. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, even though the earthly ones are. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. What we are looking for is the coming of that rock, the rock of ages, the great stone upon which our faith is built. The church is built upon the rock of Jesus, not built upon the rock of Peter which is a rolling stone, but upon the solid rock of Jesus Christ. And whenever you look, like in the Psalms, whenever you see the word rock, 
used when it's not talking about those hard things out in the garden. Whenever it uses the word rock, it usually connects it with God. It usually connects it with the Savior. It connects it with strength. That's where our strength is, and that's where our hope is. And in verse 46, then the king Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face, and he worshipped Daniel. Daniel didn't want his worship, but this is a heathen king, don't forget. And it means he bowed down in reverence before him, and he commanded that they should offer him oblation and sweet odors unto him. You see, Nebuchadnezzar, bless his heart, he, he, was, he meant well for a heathen, and he didn't know he shouldn't be worshiping Daniel, that he shouldn't be offering him offerings and so forth. And God kind of winked at that because he had a few things that he was going to reveal to Nebuchadnezzar too and teach him. And it says, And the king answered unto Daniel, and he said, Of a truth it is that your God is a God of gods. He's above all gods. And a Lord of kings, even me, and a revealer of secrets, seeing that thou couldst reveal the secret. Then Daniel requested that the king uh, of the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. So they became regional governors. But Daniel, Daniel sat in the gate of the king. He was in the king's cabinet, if you want to say that. And verses 48 and 49, Then the king made Daniel a great man and gave him many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief of the governors over all the wise men of Babylon. Then Daniel requested, I mentioned that, about the, of the king that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego I'll be over the affairs of the province of Babylon. And so, my friends, in summary, humans have not been very accurate in predicting the future. This vision has been 100% accurate over 2,600 years. The four empires of history and the divided kingdom, which have come and gone, only the fifth kingdom, the kingdom of rock, is before us. We are living at the end of temporal history, awaiting the second coming of Jesus. In that image, we are on not only the feet, we are on the toes, and I believe we're on the toenails of time, ready to be trimmed off. God alone knows and reveals the future, and the word of God can be trusted. That's the message of Daniel.